Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we are live digitally. Um, So thank you all so much for joining us for this event. Thank you. um, Which, as you probably know, um, is held in conjunction with the American Anthropological Association's Anthro Day. Um, And we are thrilled to have Gabrielle from the AAA with us today. So giving some institutional representation here. Um, And so some of you may be hearing us for the first time ever because you um, are fans of the work that they do. So Anthro Day is, according to their official blurb, um, quote, a day for anthropologists to celebrate our discipline while sharing it with the world around us. And so we're celebrating by sharing this curated collection of bits from the human story with a live-ish audience, and then it will show up in pristine and heavily edited form on the main feed. So you guys get to see all our goofs and stutters and missed lines (laughs) and get a little peek behind the curtain. But we're hoping that we can do this, this live show, uh, I guess, digital version more in the near future. So if listeners who are listening in the future, if you've missed this live show, hopefully you can come to the next one. So listeners and viewers. Today, we will be making several stops along the various byroads of human evolution by taking you along a tour of some of the cave sites in Africa that different species of hominin once called home. Uh, This is in no way going to be a comprehensive trip. Uh, So once again, as we have mentioned several times, um, and people who have looked at maps might know, Africa is so, 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 oh, so big. And the timeline of human evolution goes back millions of years. So actually, more things happened outside of caves than inside them. Uh, so we won't get to everything. Not, not even close. Nope, not even. So it's going to be a highlights tour. I have chosen two sites in northern Africa and several in what is today South Africa, because that's where the caves are. And we'll talk about the sites themselves, the hominins that inhabited them, and some things that make each site especially cool. Some some sites made the cut, some sites didn't. There's some, some no sites weren't in Africa. <laughs> some sites were <laughs> Yeah, for a while there I was Africa. like, yeah, Gibraltar. <laughs> mm super not in Africa. So there's no particular rhyme or reason to the order we're doing these in, only that we're going to start in the north and head south. One more quick note about a term we'll be using just so everybody's on the same page. Including the co-host. Including the co-host. Hi, Amber. Hominin refers to the lineage that we, Homo sapiens, belong to that includes all the extinct species in the genus Homo, as well as the genus Australopithecus. And so the term excludes other extant great apes. So yes, humans are great apes. Wait. So yeah, you're a great ape. You gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos, orangutans. But not gibbons. No, gibbons are lesser apes. This is what I take from our own show. Yep. Great job. So let's go exploring. All right. So we're going to start somewhere that I know. (laughs) This is 
Thank you, Anna. Um, it You're was welcome. today Morocco at a site named Jebel Erhud. This site is going to let us get at the question that I'm sure many of our listeners and viewers have whenever we start talking about the ancient human past, and that is, when did, hu- when did humans first start being human? So let's manage some expectations right <laughs> off the bat. I love to manage expectations. Um, we don't know. I wish I could say that, like, all the time. Be like, let me manage your expectations. I don't know. <laughs> um, just like so, in your in your work life yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> that would be nice um, so not just us researchers don't know either so it's not my fault the exact origins of homo sapiens are murky but discoveries at Jebel Erhud have made the picture just a little bit clearer archaeologists unearthed the bones of at least five people at Jebel Erhud a former bearite Bearite mine. Uh, I mean, it's not an important detail. <laughs> a former mine, shall uh, okay. we say. Bearite. Um, that is 100 kilometers west of Marrakesh in excavations that lasted years. So they knew the remains were old, but were stunned when dating tests revealed that a tooth and stone tools found with the bones were about 300,000 years old. So uh, Jean-Jacques Hublin a senior scientist on the team at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig commented, quote, my reaction was a big wow. I was expecting them to be old, but not that old. Uh, And uh, Hublin said the extreme age of the bones make them the oldest known specimens of modern humans. Previously, the oldest securely dated Homo sapiens fossils were known from the site of Homo cubish, in Ethiopia, dated to 195,000 years ago. At Herto, also in Ethiopia, a Homo sapiens fossil is dated to 160,000 years ago. Until now, most researchers believe that all humans living today descended from a population that lived in East Africa around 200,000 years ago. (laughs) So those bones of Homo sapiens in North Africa from 300,000 years ago, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, And so um, geochronology expert Daniel Richter of the Max Planck Institute um, explained, quote, well-dated sites of this age are exceptionally rare in Africa, but we were fortunate that so many of the Jebel Erhud flint artifacts had been heated in the past. This allowed us to apply thermoluminescence dating methods on the flint artifacts and establish a consistent chronology for the new hominin fossils and the layers above them. It's science time. It's time for me to barge in for a second, just to remind everybody how thermoluminescence dating works, or to tell you if you weren't aware previously. So for this method- Or perhaps you forgot. Maybe you forgot and you didn't read the script yet. Yeah. Maybe that's what happened. So for this method, the material being tested needs to have a crystalline structure, as flint does. So that's handy. Thermoluminescent testing also relies on the principle that all objects absorb radiation from the environment, including us. This process frees, uh, yeah, you're absorbing ambient radiation all the time, Amber. I'm sorry. Very low levels. Very, very low levels. That's why I shop at Sephora. Mm. Mm -hmm. You are glowing. Anna prepared for this this show by doing like a lot of research and writing an amazing script. I prepared by doing like an intensive two-week regimen on my face. Your face looks great. Thank you. Can I just say? Your script looks great. Thanks. How about my face? Your face Um, is fine. Thermoluminescent testing relies on the principle that all objects absorb radiation from the environment, 
This process frees electrons within elements or minerals that remain caught within that crystalline structure. So the electrons are free to bounce around, but they're not going anywhere because they're in that crystalline structure. Over time, as an artifact sits in its sediments and absorbs ambient radiation, those freed electrons accumulate. So thermoluminescence testing involves heating a sample until it releases a type of light corresponding with those free electrons, because light is energy, which is then measured to determine the last time the item was heated. So if we assume that the last time those flint tools at Jebel Irud were heated was when humans were around doing the heating and actually making those tools, then we can link the age of the stone tools to the time when the site was inhabited. Uh, Jean-Jacques Hublin says of the reevaluated material, quote, this gives us a completely different picture of the evolution of our species. It goes much further back in time, but also like a but also the very process of evolution is different to what we thought. Um, he goes on to say, it looks like our species was already present probably all over Africa by 300,000 years ago. If there was a Garden of Eden, it might have been the size of the continent. Excuse me. <laughs> oh, there's the third co-host. <laughs> Um, the team was also able to recalculate a direct age of the Jebel Erhud three mandible. So it's the third individual found? Yeah, third individual and uh, that person's jawbone. Okay. Found in the 1960s. This mandible had been previously dated to 160,000 years ago, like the other one. Um, using new <laughs> measures of the radioactivity of the Jebel or Hood sediments, as, and as a result of methodological improvements in the method, this fossil's newly calculated age is in agreement with the thermoluminescence ages and much older than previously realized. Yeah. So they measured the radiation. So you may think, how do you know what the ambient radiation Did is? Did they hold a Geiger counter up to it? <laughs> well, not far off. Um, they used a dosimeter, which is a device that measures ionizing radiation. And so it's a little little tube. They have There are wearable ones. Like if you work in a research environment or, oh, yeah. I don't know, a nuclear power plant where you might be exposed to levels of radiation, there's a wearable dosimeter that'll be like, boop, 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 you're being exposed to high levels. Um, but it's got a, a crystal, like usually phosphor crystals inside, and researchers will implant dosimeters into archaeological sediments and leave them. In my limited experience, it was a year that a researcher left uh, his dosimeters in a site, but I've also heard, you know, shorter lengths of time, so days, months, years. And then the important thing is they, they come back and get it, and then they measure how much radiation was taken up over the course of that span of time. And then that measurement is used to calculate the rate of ambient radiation accumulation in those sediments. So wow. then once you measure the radiation in an artifact, you can use that to backtrack and calculate how old that artifact is, or at least the last time it was heated. So presumably when humans were around and also fire. So like it was heated, was heating part of making it? Or was heating? Yes, and oh, okay. we will get to that at another okay. site further okay. along in the okay. script. From Jebel Irhud, we are traveling north along the coast to another site in Morocco, about nine miles west of Tangier, so past the past the port. Um, because been there. Um, uh, the caves <laughs> of Hercules. Yeah, you kind of have to say them like that, don't you? Yeah, I the did every time I mentioned it, and they were like, "Okay, of so. Hercules." <laughs> 
So the name kind of gives it away, but this is a site that is heavily colored by myth and legend. So I thought it would be fun to cover this one, not so much for human origins discussions, but to revisit the idea that we've touched on several times before on the show, that caves are places that for countless people across time and geography have a feeling of sacredness or importance or placiness about them. Yeah. So uh, everybody knows I love talking about this um, and the sense of of, of numinous places and sort of numinosity. Uh, and the caves, caves of Hercules are a prime example of that. Uh, so this is from Atlas Obscura, and I'm quoting it. According to the myth, Hercules, adapted from the Greek Hercules, slept here on his way to steal three golden apples from the Garden of the Hesperides. Stealing the apples, which were believed to confer immortality, was the 11th of the 12 labors of Hercules. So he was almost done. Hercules is responsible, at least in mythology, for a lot of the geography between southern Spain and northern Africa. The pillars of Hercules in Homer's legend uh, were the two pillars on which that big strong boy pressed to separate Europe from Africa and are today accepted as being two mountains at the mouth of the Mediterranean. Uh, where it meets the Atlantic Ocean, namely on either side of the Straits of Gibraltar. I Which read it once when I was a child. In Africa. And so I still think it's Gilbatrar, and I have to like correct myself. Gilbatrar. Gilbatrar. Like, I'm pretty it. sure that's a transformer. <laughs> So, so this idea of like the the pillars of of Hercules is is possibly like a Greek repetition um, of the story of Samson that sort of that you may know from like the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's sort of more broadly from like the mythology of sort of Western Asia, um, and so. Samson, who's said to have brought down the building he was in by separating and shearing two of its columns, just like. So another myth concerns Hercules' theft of the golden apples, placing the giant, Atlas, uh, and his task of supporting the weight of the world at the pillars of Hercules. Like this. Um, and then later placing him at Rockefeller Center statue outside the skating rink oh, is that what in that New is? York. Yeah, that's what that is. Okay. 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 Um, so <laughs> another story uh, goes that the cave is the one end of a 15-mile-long tunnel between Morocco and Spain. A popular folktale is that the famous macaque monkeys at the Rock <laughs> of Gibraltar came from Africa this way. Uh, and so uh, there's no I don't I couldn't find traces like I didn't see that the tunnel is extant now. I don't know where that tunnel is. I don't know where the tunnel is. Mythical monkey tunnel. So um, Atlas Obscura opines, you won't find Hercules or monkeys within the caves, but they're because we're back at the caves of Hercules, uh, but they're worth exploring nonetheless. The complex has two openings. The one that faces the sea resembles the shape of Africa and is said to have been created by the Phoenicians. The opening that that faces land was created by the local Berbers who cut their stones from the rock. Like to build stuff. And so speaking of Greek myth, let's travel to a different location to talk about Orpheus and Eurydice. Hmm. So we're going. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bummer story, but oh. we're not we're not we're not actually going to talk about that oh, story. Oh, thank goodness, because I'll cry. Oh. Um, so we're going way, way, way down south to the Dremelin Cave site, all the way to the other end of the continent, to what is today South Africa and what was at the time 
It was not Southern Africa then. (laughs) 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 It's just south end of the continent. Yeah. That didn't have an air as far as we know. So in this case, we aren't talking about Greek myth, really. That was just a clever transition. (laughs) Orpheus and Eurydice are names given to two specimens found at this site. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. A lot of uh, you know, two projecting. lovers in the underworld. Uh, mm. I mean, only one of them's in the underworld. Okay. Spoilers. <laughs> oh, spoilers for the myth. Yeah. Yes. I thought you were talking about these hominins. I was like, they're definitely dead. No. That's, um, no. So we're talking. That's we're my talking answer. about an early branch of our family tree, and one that was pruned after a relatively short <sighs> time. Short time on an evolutionary time scale. So we're talking about Paranthropus robustus. So this is from a 2020 piece by an author at the New York Times whose work we've used before and appreciate, Nicholas St. Fleur. Nestled in South Africa's cradle of humankind, the Drimlin Paleo Cave is an amphitheater hosting the remains of ancient ancestors of humans. Um, in that it is the shape of an amphitheater. It's open. Not that it is. It's not a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Most famous among the hominins found there are Orpheus and Eurydice, a pair of Paranthropus robustus unearthed in 1994 and named after the lovers from Greek mythology. They are just two of more than 160 fossilized specimens of our early extinct relatives dug up at the roofless cave. I guess I could have saved that explanation. Now archaeologists excavating the site have discovered even more remains that could transform our understanding of when and where our human ancestors and their relatives lived millions of years ago in this part of Africa. The south of it. In the journal Science, they published a paper identifying the skull cap and teeth of another Paranthropus robustus, as well as the cranium of our direct ancestor, Homo erectus. So Paranthropus, not our direct ancestor. Side branch. Both specimens date to between 1.95 and 2.04 million years ago. If confirmed, the findings would be the oldest known Paranthropus robustus, as well as the oldest known Homo erectus, nudging out the next oldest known specimen by 150 to 200,000 years. By quite a margin. But this means that they would have been around that whole time. Like they're yeah, they didn't go away and then come back. I know that I just asked a question like they were cicadas or something, but like this is sort of like further they evidence. They themselves that- for seven years and then. <laughs> um, so we know that um, Paranthropus like sort of flourished for at least 150 to 200,000 years if we happen to find the first ones and the last ones. Yeah, like, exactly. That- we've, okay. got the, we've got the boundaries of okay. that. Yeah. So, but the fact that Paranthropus kind of starts earlier than we thought is interesting. So there are two very different species that I mentioned here. So for the moment, I'm just going to stick with talking about Paranthropus. And as a caveat, this is very oversimplified, This the explanation that is coming. People have whole careers based on this species. We're just over here trying to do a podcast segment. So this is a branch of the Australopithecus family, which includes specimens like Lucy, whom you may recognize. Australopiths were small and hairy, with brains about the size of chimpanzee brains, but they were definitely bipedal. So they walked like we did. They didn't have big brains like ours. Uh, They hadn't quite lost all their body hair yet, but they were on the way to the human body plan. We know that humans are directly descended from Australopiths, but Paranthropus is more like a side branch. Paranthropus are notable for being particularly well evolved to their environment during a period of dry grassland climate in Africa. 
So they evolved massive jaws and molars that allowed them to chow down on tough grasses and tubers and gave them the early nickname Nutcracker Man when some of the early specimens were discovered. Because they really have, not only do they have very large mandibles and molars, like their cheek teeth are very, very big and blocky, um, but their whole face is evolved because when you develop muscles, your bone develops along with it. Mm -hmm. So like if you became a bodybuilder on only one arm, that arm's bones would look a lot different from your other arm. So Paranthropus had these really wide flaring cheekbones and the it's suspected that there was some sexual differences between males and females in appearance, but in general, really wide flaring cheekbones and cresting on the top of the head. So it's got this ridge that muscles could yeah. uh, attach to. So all to kind of support this chomping apparatus. But- Unfortunately for Paranthropus, it seems to be the case that they were a bit too specialized Aww. for that environment because when the African climate shifted again, we see evidence that this branch of the family faded from the fossil record. So they just like chewed too hard. They, they <laughs> chewed no, they, too they close became, to the sun. They chewed well. Um, <laughs> and then there became less available for them to, to chew because it became more of a forested environment. Yeah. Well. well. The findings at Dremelin are especially cool because they give paleoanthropologists important new insight into the evolution of Paranthropus. Um, so males of the species, as Anna mentioned, were thought to be substantially larger than females. Um, so this is uh, sexual dimorphism. And so this is much like the size differences seen in modern day primates such as gorillas, orangutans, and baboons. And so um, in these gorillas, like male gorillas can often be up to three times the size of the fully adult females. Same, I think, around the same ratios for orangutans and baboons, although I'm not an expert there, but quite the size difference. But the new fossil discovery instead suggests that Paranthropus robustus evolved rapidly during a turbulent period of local climate change about 2 million years ago, resulting in anatomical changes that previously were attributed to sex. So David Strait, professor of biological anthropology in arts and sciences at uh, Washington University, said, quote, this is the type of phenomenon that can be hard to document in the fossil record, especially with respect to early human evolution. The working hypothesis has been that climate change created stress in populations of Australopithecus, leading eventually to their demise, but that environmental conditions were more favorable for Homo erectus and Paranthropus, who may have dispersed into the region from elsewhere. We now see that environmental conditions were probably stressful for Paranthropus as well, and that they needed to adapt to survive. End quote. So the research team compared the Dremelin fossils to that from another Paranthropus from the site of Swartkrans. Swartkrans. Um, yeah, is, and that's, it's not as far away as I thought. It's actually quite close. Pretty close? A little? Yeah, it's, little it's really close by, but the specimens are separated in time oh, rather than... It's hard to cross so, that pretty far away. <laughs> unless you're... Dracula. Mm, Keanu Reeves and Joe. Yeah. Who's in the lake house? Oh, gosh. Sandra Bullock? Sandra Bullock. That's the I one. There's another better Keanu Reeves movie for this, which is oh. Bram Stoker's Dracula, in which Gary Oldman has crossed oceans of time. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. 
There, they found variations that couldn't be explained by sex differences. So Jesse Martin, a doctoral student at La Trobe University and the first co-author of the study, said, quote, It now looks as if the difference between the two sites cannot simply be explained as differences between males and females, but rather as the population-level differences between the sites. Our recent work has shown that Dremelin predates Swartkrans by about 200,000 years, and so we believe that... Afrikaans is hard. <laughs> And so we believe that Paranthropus robustus evolved over time with Dremelin representing an early population and Swatkrans representing a later, more anatomically derived population. Yeah, so they're the ones with the, the flaring and the cresting, like really pronounced like in what was adapted? thought to be the males. Yeah, super adapted. Okay. So one can use the fossil record to help reconstruct the evolutionary relationships between species, and that pattern can provide all sorts of insights into the processes that shape the evolution of particular groups. But in the case of Paranthropus robustus, we can see discrete samples of the species drawn from the same geographic region, but slightly different times exhibiting, exhibiting subtle anatomical differences, and that is consistent with change within a species. Yeah, so it's really hard with the fossil record because it's so fragmentary. Just by yeah. default, these things, these these specimens are very, very old, and so often what you see is sort of discrete individuals without really a sense of how they might be connected along what we know yeah. is an evolutionary timeline. So this study is really cool because it sort of lets us sample from within that timeline in the same region, meaning that you can't really account for the differences in the physiology because of wildly different environments, because they wouldn't have been too far away from one another. And so um, is there a possibility that we can have something similar for other species, like to, like as we are able to do more research and, you know, do Yeah, every specimen research? that's found fills in a tiny piece, or sometimes not so tiny, a piece of the picture. Yeah. Wow. So it increases the resolution of what was a dynamic environment full of these species and full of them adapting and changing over long, long time scales. So evolution was happening. It's just really hard to see physically. We, just, we know it was happening. We see it in genetics. We see it in some of the fossil evidence. But this is a particular example where we understand better that some of the morphology, some of the the shapes of the, the bones in Paranthropus aren't in fact what we thought, which was sexual dimorphism. They're explained better by hyper adaptation, which is neat. Isn't that cool? That's very cool. So we're actually going to stay in this same region as we head over to another site. A little bit south of Dremelin is the site of Sterkfontein. So Amber, I have provided here for you another feast of mostly Afrikaans names for you to chew on. And then right. I've got some some more humdingers for you later. Oh, great. Great. So this is, so everybody's going to get to see behind the curtain when I just like stumble through and then we listen no, to you can just you can just us. be ridiculous about these. They're oh. exactly like they sound, or they're exactly like they are spelled, rather. Like they sound. <laughs> um, <laughs> they sound exactly like nice. they sound. Uh, Sturkfontein is a set of limestone caves located in Gauteng province, about 40 kilometers, that's 25 miles, northwest of Johannesburg, South Africa, in the Moldersdrift area close to the town of Krugersdorp. Krugersdorp. The archaeological sites of Swartkrans and Kromdry are in the same area. It's a lot of vowels. It's a lot of vowels. A lot, a lot of, of vowels. One could say superfluous vowels, but I wouldn't say. Who are we? 
Who are we to say? So this system of limestone caves became famous with the 1947 discovery of the two million year old fossil skull dubbed Mrs. Pliss. Yep. Mrs. Pliss. Mrs. Pliss. Your friend and mine. Uh, also super rude to just assume that she's married. She's I can't. I can't even have her right own now. name. Yes. So after this, her first her, name is Mrs. After this monumental find, work continued at the site for decades. Then in 1997, Littlefoot, a hominid skeleton aged about aged at about 3.5 million years, was discovered in the caves. In addition to these two stars, the caves also <laughs> produced of over 500 other fossils. So we don't have 500 fossils worth of time. Um, and also, this isn't like 500 individuals of fossils. Nope. Okay. Pieces. Pieces okay, of great. individuals that are fossils. Okay. Um, so we're only going to talk about Littlefoot here. Littlefoot. So this is from Nature News. Uh, quote, after a tortuous 20-year-long excavate, tortuous, <laughs> uh, 20-year-long we'll excavation. Oh, no, this is that one. Oh, no. A mysterious ancient skeleton is starting to give, us, give up its secrets about human evolution. The first of a raft of papers about Littlefoot suggests that the fossil is a female who showed some of the earliest signs of human-like bipedal walking around 3.67 million years ago. She may also belong to a distinct species that most researchers haven't previously recognized. So Robin Crompton, a musculoskeletal biologist at the University of Liverpool in the UK, um, who has collaborated with a research team that excavated the skeleton, says, quote, it's almost a miracle it's come out intact. As well as echoing the mythical Bigfoot. Which it's not a cryptid. This is not... This is not, not a relic hominin. Nope, it's not. The nickname Littlefoot comes from the small size of the foot. But <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. Duh. Uh, the small <laughs> size of the foot bones that were among the first parts of the skeleton to be discovered. The first signs that there was an invaluable hominin specimen up for grabs came in 1994. Ronald Clark, a paleoanthropologist at the Wits University in Johannesburg, South Africa, was rifling through boxes of fossils at a field laboratory <laughs> in the Sterfontein Caves. It sounds like he like he went in there wasn't to pilfer them. Supposed to be there? No, he was uh, just checking them out. About 40 kilometers west of northwest of Johannesburg. He realized that a handful of small bones in the collection belonged to an early hominin. He established that the bones were those of a species of Australopithecus, ape-like hominins that were present in Africa between 4 million and 2 million, thereabouts, years ago. Clark and his colleagues then found many more bones embedded in a matrix of solid rock, rock deep in those dark Fontaine caves. They began carefully excavating Littlefoot, piece by fragile piece using hammers and chisels followed by precision tools the entire process took them almost 20 years and that's because crompton says quote the fossilized bone is actually softer than the matrix in which it's fossilized Uh, what a nightmare so it's been an absolute devil to get it out but that's pretty incredible. So uh, according to the Smithsonian Magazine, while Lucy, the most famous early hominin skeleton found in Ethiopia in the 1970s, is about 40% complete, Littlefoot is 90% complete and still has her head. Lucy only she has is, bits of her head. Yeah, it counts. No. Um, <laughs> she's, she's doing great. 
doing great. Um, she is believed to be a different species of Australopithecus than Lucy and may be older. Lucy is believed to be about 3.2 million years old, while Ronald Clark and his team have dated Littlefoot to 3.67 million years, though that date is controversial. What date isn't? So, back to nature. Research on Littlefoot's limbs and locomotion reveals that her legs are longer than her arms, similar to modern humans, making her the oldest hominin, for which we can be sure of that feature. This means that Littlefoot was better adapted to walking upright on the ground than many other australopiths, at least some of which seem to have spent more time moving through trees. Which Little... longer arms help yep. with. Yep. Littlefoot's skull bones and teeth are so unusual that Clark and his colleagues have categorized her as a distinct species. They chose not to give this species a new name, but instead designated as australopithecus prometheus so i hear you I, I see you all clamoring in your window saying that's a new name uh but no it's not <laughs> let me tell you what's going turns on. out a prometheus so australopithecus prometheus was first suggested in 1948 on the basis of a skull fragment found roughly 250 kilometers north of johannesburg but the name quickly fell out of fashion when researchers decided it was simply an unusual representative of an already recognized species called australopithecus africanus yeah and so this is why it is so difficult to classify anything as a species in the fossil record because it's like trying to classify Homo sapiens using mixed bones from about six people. And when you think about the enormous physical variation that we see in the human species, the likelihood that those six individuals and their miscellaneous body parts are going to account for that variation is a remote one. Yeah. So whatever... Littlefoot's actual place on the human family tree, shrub, tumbleweed, um, might be, she is incredibly important for paleoanthropologists because her anatomy speaks to some of the first evidence for how our human body plan evolved. So let's ponder that for a moment or two while we have a quick ad break. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back and we're headed east and just a little bit south now to Border Cave, where there's evidence that perhaps people have been making their beds and lying in them for a very long time. Consequence Cave. 
from Science Magazine from an article in August of 2020. Border Cave is a deep gash in a cliff face high in the Lubombo Mountains of South Africa. Sheltered from the elements, the spot has yielded bones, tools, and preserved plant material that paint a detailed picture of the lives of human inhabitants for more than 200,000 years. Now, there's a new sketch emerging. Plant remains point to evidence that the cave's occupants used grass bedding around 200,000 years ago. Researchers speculate that the cave's occupants laid their bedding on ash to repel insects. But other researchers point to uncertainty in the dates and note that absent a time machine, scientists have to speculate about exactly how ancient people used the piled up grasses and ash. It's like, okay. Lynn Wadley, an archaeologist at the University of the Witwatersrand, or Wits University, made the discovery when excavating Border Cave with her team. One morning, she noticed white flecks in the brown earth of the sediment as she was digging. And she says, quote, I looked up at these with a magnifying glass and realized that these were plant traces. The quantities of grass suggest people brought it into the cave intentionally. It's not just wind, masses of windblown grass, that, like tumbleweed in. The sediment showed repeating layers of plant and ash, she says, suggesting to her that the material was used to create a clean and comfortable floor surface. The repeated layers of ash and plant material suggest ancient humans deliberately laid bedding over ash. People around the world, including in present-day Cameroon, have long used various kinds of ash to repel and kill insects by blocking their breathing and biting apparatus. Their little, little vents. The evidence in Border Cave suggests humans deliberately used ash and medicinal plants to keep their camps clean and pest-free. Specifically, um, camphor grass, I think, was one of the things, which is... Strong smelling, and it's still used in Cameroon today. Yeah, it's used Wadley, all kinds of places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, but specifically, sort of locally mentioned. In, yeah, like, locally, yes. this? still used by locals. Yes, thank you. My brain went uh, <laughs> looking for that word. Wadley explained that the people living at Border Cave might have had the equivalent of cracker crumbs in their bed, saying, quote, We know that people worked as well as slept on the grass surface because debris from stone tool manufacture is mixed with the grass remains. Like, who's who's making stone tools They're working in bed? from home. I'm <laughs> <laughs> having a Zoom meeting with just like somebody across the cave. Also, many tiny rounded grains of red and orange ochre were found in the bedding where they may have rubbed off human skin or colored objects. So ochre is actually, along with camphor grass, actually, is still used among uh, uh, traditional groups in Africa as a sunscreen, kind of, as a sun skin protector, mm-hmm. as uh, a hair treatment, as body decoration. So um, it would be really interesting to to think it's, it's impossible to say specifically, but it's interesting to think of continuity in that behavior for hundreds of thousands of years. Modern hunter gatherer camps have fires as focal points. People regularly sleep alongside them and perform domestic tasks in social contexts. People at border cave also lit fires regularly as seen by stacked fireplaces throughout the sequence dated between about 200,000 and 38,000 years ago. So, although hunter-gatherers tend to be mobile and seldom stay in one place for more than a few weeks, cleansing camps had the potential to extend potential occupancy. The idea of, this is cool because it's the idea of people doing things to their environment to make their environment more hospitable and habitable, right? So, clearing out old bedding or even burning old bedding and then laying down new bedding on top of that is the equivalent of sort of cleaning house. And whether that's 
what they did when they arrived at the site to use it or what they did to continue using the site is sort of impossible to say. Yeah. That is so awesome. It's like really, really awesome. It's Um, an intimate detail, which that far back you you seldom get. Um, So there's something else that's special about Border Cave. It might be the earliest evidence of humans using poison. Mm -hmm. Uh, So probably for hunting animals, not murdering. So sorry. 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 And you're welcome. It's not that kind of podcast, everybody. Um, So a notched wooden stick from South Africa's border cave dating to 24,000 years ago contains the earliest evidence of humans using poison. The artifact was found in the 1970s, but new chemical analyses conducted by a research team led by Francesco Darico of Bordeaux University in France revealed trace amounts of substances from poisonous castor beans. Ordeal by beans. The same it's beans. Those beans. Same beans. Still poisonous. Same, Don't eat them. Same bean, different ordeal. Yeah. Um, so the stick may have been used to apply poison to arrowheads, just as a culture of modern day hunter gatherers called the sun does today in Southern Africa. So according to Derrico, Poison is an important part of traditional sawn hunting methods because their bone-tipped arrows usually don't cause enough damage to kill large prey on their own. Yeah, they're small. Their bows and arrows are quite small, so they don't well, create a, a lot of And a lot force. of things have very thick skin. Yeah. Like that sort mm-hmm. of the... Um, so if you put liquid poison, possibly mixed with beeswax, in the notch and then run your arrow point like through or along the notch, uh, you kind of coat it with the poison and like ideally you don't get it on yourself. Um, so this is a strategy used by hunter-gatherer populations all over the world, um, especially when they're trying to take down really big prey, such as perhaps whales in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so there's evidence from uh, the Aleut uh, archaeological record that shows uh, slate harpoon tips or spear tips um, with engravings in them that are basically uh, monograms. So it's basically like, this is Dave's spear, and they would coat that with poison. And then if that broke off in the whale, the whale would eventually die and be washed onto shore. And then you could kind of track it and find it on shore. And your your calling card would be still sort of attached to the whale. You can be like, that's my whale. We're like, Dave, Dave, you got a whale here. (laughs) Is there a whale for Dave? Um, So the poison applicator is just one of several artifacts, some dating to as early as 44,000 years ago that resemble objects used by the sand. Hang on. Others include a digging stick, ostrich eggshell beads, carved pig tusks, bone arrowheads, and a lump of beeswax. Hence the theory that beeswax poison. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Derrico's team believes that the artifacts indicate that the San culture emerged about 44,000 years ago, making these artifacts the earliest link to a culture of modern humans. But, listeners, remember what we said in our recent episode about inequality. Even if there really seems to be continuity from prehistory to current modern human behavior, um, you have to be careful when trying to use the latter as a proxy for the former. And you don't want to create false equivalencies or sort of um, interpolate uh, things that yeah. aren't there. Yeah, and it's it's certainly compelling that a behavior that is evidenced in the archaeological record from 40 plus thousand years ago is also being carried out today, but are missing those dots in the middle. Yeah. 
So on to a new site. We're headed a bit west and even further south to almost the very southernmost tip of the continent to the site of Pinnacle Point. Today, the site is in an area called Mossel Bay, which, for no other reason than I want to read the names, is near Bogums Bay, Vlies Bay, and Groot Brac Riviere. Those are those names. So let's set the scene for human habitation at Pinnacle Point. Scene. It's around 195,000 years ago. For a long time, until now, the local climate was mild. Food was abundant. Life was good. Sounds great. Everybody has those t-shirts that say life is good. But That's then, what they're talking about. They're talking mm-hmm. about Pinnacle Point. They are. But then, around 195,000 years ago, conditions began to deteriorate. Oh, yeah? Mm. The planet entered a long glacial stage known as Marine Isotope Stage 6, or MIS-6, that lasted until roughly 123,000 years ago. Yes. What? <laughs> what is a marine isotope Do you isotope need a science? St- what is a marine isotope stage? And... Were there, like, was this the sixth installment? It was a direct-to-video <laughs> yep. sequel. Yeah. What is it? What's going on? Marine isotope stages are alternating warm and cool periods in the Earth's paleoclimate. So climate constantly fluctuates, but there are certain phases where trending temperatures are either sort of warmer or cooler. Warmer tends to be more humid. Colder periods tend to be more arid. We know that climate fluctuated because we have corresponding shifts in the proportions of two oxygen isotopes, oxygen-16 and oxygen-18, from deep-sea core samples. O-16, since it has fewer molecules, or atoms rather, is lighter. So those atoms are towards the top of the ocean, and they evaporate more readily. Not only that, when it's a glacial climate phase, more of those lighter atoms get locked up in glaciers. They get frozen because glacial. So the isotopes get deposited in sediments by tiny marine critters called foraminifera. And these little guys Wait, have say hard it again. Sh- foraminifera. Uh, what's that mean? <laughs> what's that? A hole bearing? They got little holes. A foramen is a hole and ferro ferre. It's not a language podcast. <laughs> so these little guys have hard shells. Uh they're also called tests. What? Their shells are called tests. And they build those shells from calcium carbonate. Calcium carbonate has oxygen in the molecule. So those isotopes get bound up in their shells as they're formed during the organism's lifetime. And so then when the foraminifera die and drift to the seafloor, they form part of the marine sediment. So the oxygen kind of proportions of 16 to 18 that were in the ocean around them at the time as they were forming their little shells, that's what gets bound up. Right. So in deep sea cores, which are drilled out of that marine sediment, when you see a higher proportion of O18, you know it was a glacial phase. There's less O16 because it's being evaporated and frozen. There's more O18 around in the water to be bound up in those little shells. And the reverse is true as well. So when the proportions shift in the marine sediment layers, you can infer that it was a corresponding shift in climate. Yeah. So, Amber, if you would, take us back to Pinnacle Point. And this is uh, an article from Scientific American, but it's written by Curtis Curtis Marion, who uh, is the PI, the lead uh, excavator on the Pinnacle Point excavations and has been for a long time, I think. This is from 2012. So I I, uh, zhuzhed it a little bit, but it's mostly his words. Okay. 
A detailed record of Africa's environmental conditions during glacial stage six does not exist, but based on more recent, better known glacial stages, climatologists surmise that it was almost certainly cool and arid and that its deserts were probably significantly expanded relative to their modern extents. 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 Their modern extents. Much of the landmass would have been uninhabitable. While the planet was in the grip of this icy regime, the number of people plummeted and only a subset contributed to the surviving population. It's too chilly. Geneticists debate how small this population was, but it could have been as few as a several hundred individuals. From a survival standpoint, what makes the southern edge of Africa attractive is its unique combination of plants and animals. There, a thin strip of land containing the highest diversity of flora for its size in the world hugs the shoreline. Known as the Cape Floral Region, this 90,000 square kilometer strip contains an astonishing 9,000 plant species, some 64% of which only live there. But the key plants in these groups produce the world's greatest diversity of geophytes, underground energy storage organs such as tubers, bulbs, and corms. Corms. Got your corms on the cob. (laughs) Geophytes are an important food source for modern-day hunter-gatherers for several reasons. They contain high amounts of carbohydrate. They attain their peak carbohydrate content reliably at certain times of the year. And unlike above-ground fruits, nuts, and seeds, they have few predators. So because if you learn ge- to dig for them, yeah, dig, you dig, get dig, them. Dig, dig, dig. And because geophytes are adapted to dry conditions, they would have readily they would have been readily available during arid glacial phases. Recent studies in South Africa show that many of these species are easy to procure and rich in calories, especially when cooked. Mm. The southern coast also has an excellent source of protein to offer. Just offshore, there is a mix of cold and warm eddies along the southern coast. This varied ocean environment nurtures diverse and dense beds of shellfish in the rocky intertidal zones and sandy beaches. Shellfish are a very high-quality source of protein and omega-3 fatty acids. Plus, lower ocean temperatures result in a greater abundance of shellfish. So they like it chilly. There was a third major food source here, too. When sea levels dropped, a plain was exposed in front of the caves dominated by grasslands, which were home to large herds of mammals. And also herds of large mammals. Hmm? A plain? They're like a savanna. Oh. Not like a airplane. It's just like, what is it, a wreck? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> this was tens of thousands hey. of years ago. I don't know. Okay. So you have your grasslands with mm-hmm. your large mammals. You have your shellfish in the intertidal zone. And you have your corms and your other underground uh, tubers to eat as well. So Sounds great. basically, this was an all-you-can-eat buffet, except that you had to hunt and forage everything for yourself. And there weren't any chafing dishes heating your food. Net positive. Net positive. And speaking of heating, look at me on my segue as I segue. There's one more very cool piece of evidence for human behavior from Pinnacle Point that I want to talk about. And it has to do with understanding material properties and manipulating raw materials to achieve a desired effect, which is something that's been pointed to as a real kind of marker of human behavior, although that is changing. So this is an older article. It's from 2009 from Science Magazine. Modern humans may have been using fire to make tools for a very long time. The oldest example of this behavior that we know of so far is actually not in Africa. Uh, And I added this part because Science Magazine in 2009 hadn't heard about this yet. (laughs) Uh, 
It's in what is today Israel at a site called Kesem Cave, and those finds are dated to between 420,000 and 200,000 years ago. So until 2020, when this study was published, Pinnacle Point had some of the oldest heat-treated stone tool evidence. At Pinnacle Point, researchers have found evidence that people began heat-treating stone to make it easier to shape into tools about 70,000 years ago, and possibly as early as 164,000 years ago. So now we know it's even older than that. The find adds to the evidence that a wide range of sophisticated behaviors, from advanced toolmaking to symbolism, were flourishing around the same time. The discovery has its roots in experimental archaeology. Kyle Brown, an archaeologist at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, and colleagues were trying to recreate the axes and hafted tools they were finding in the Pinnacle Point Caves, a site containing many artifacts of early human activity, to learn more about how they were made. One of the local rocks that these early humans fashioned tools from is silcrete, which is similar to flint. And yes, just like flint, it's also made from tiny marine critters from the silica stored in their tiny shells, tiny skeletons. But when the researchers tried to recreate those tools, they weren't getting what they saw in the archaeological record. They kept not getting it right. So they began experimenting with heat treatment, because what heat treatment does is it makes the way that the stone fractures more predictable. It sort of improves the quality overall of the uh, of the flint or the silcrete. And so... After much trial and error, they found that it took 20 to 40 kilograms of hardwood and almost 30 hours to create the 300 degrees Celsius temperatures in silkrete needed to fashion tools like those seen at Pinnacle Point. That's like pizza oven hot. Those conditions alone were a good sign that the stone tools were no campfire accident. The temperatures needed to get the desired changes in the local silkrete were way higher than what you'd get from a normal campfire. Previous analysis indicates that the clearly heat-treated tools, which also you can see um, color change. So if you start finding stuff in archaeological assemblages that's really noticeably a different color from the local rock, um, sometimes heat will do that. So those tools are more than 70,000 years old, meaning that humans were using fire to improve tools at this time. The dating coincides with a wave of discoveries from Pinnacle Point and other sites in South Africa that suggest a wide range of sophisticated behaviors from toolmaking to personal decoration and symbolism were all flourishing at about the same time. And so this is really cool because it, it, and, you know, another place where we're not going to be able to answer any questions because it's sort of this never ending discussion of, is there a uniquely human behavior or innovation? Probably not. No, it's, it's a suite of behaviors and, and they all build on each other and it's spectrum, especially if we see it now with this newer paper from Kesem, if we see it 400,000 years ago in the Levant, it probably was happening even earlier in Africa because that's where people dispersed from to get to the Levant. So presumably either the behavior started once people got to the Levant or already when, when they were before they started. Yeah. Well, and I guess this isn't dissimilar from um, what we were talking about earlier with sort of looking at uh, fossils and sort of looking at sort of gradation of, of species and stuff. The same thing. I guess so many dots along the line. Yeah. Wow. So we just need to find all the heat-treated stone, like, all the way back from Kesem. Just trace it back like breadcrumbs. That's how that works. Yeah. Yeah. We have one more place that we're going um, after this. I guess two, if you include bed. But let's, <laughs> um, but let's take another break.
This is Chris Webster at the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Great. Wonderful break. I feel energized. Um, our next, and I think last site today, our um, final site takes us just a little further west, still right at the tip of Southern Africa, to Blombos Cave, the site of something that is very old and might possibly be a drawing, which, of course, media being what it is, um, has been touted by headlines as earliest human drawing. Yeah, so Amber, for this one, we're going to do a little dialogue for the audience. Um, I've got part of an interview here from The Conversation, as Mm -hmm. I know you like to call it, The Convo. The Convo. With uh, one of the researchers on the team who um, researches this site and this object, um, Professor Christopher Henschelwood. And I'd like us to do a dramatic reading. So would you like to be interviewer or Dr. Henschelwood? Um. I, Henschel, would prefer to be the interviewer. Very well. You may. For for the next two minutes or so, I will be Dr. Christopher Henschelwood. Okay. What is your char- What is your motivation? What does your character um, want? I want to tell this interviewer that I think I found the earliest <laughs> human drawing, Fine, but I don't necessarily want to exactly say that it's the earliest human drawing. Oh, okay. You want them to say it and you're I be want like, them I didn't to do say the that. work for me. Okay. I mm-hmm. think we're okay. All right. This bit has gone too far. I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to <laughs> put words in Dr. Henshelwood's mouth. But he's putting words in your mouth, Anna. Dr. Henshelwood, what does the drawing your team found look like? It's on a silkrete flake and consists of a set of six straight sub-parallel lines crossed obliquely by three slightly curved lines. One line partially overlaps the edge of a flake scar, because it's on a chunk of silkrete. This suggests that it was made after that flake became detached. The abrupt termination of all lines on the fragment edges indicates that the pattern originally extended over a larger surface so the pattern was probably more complex and structured in its entirety than in this truncated form. Do we need to translate that science? Please. I think you need to translate that shape. (laughs) Uh, Well, sub-parallel lines just mean that they are parallel, but like not exactly. It's kind of wobbly. Okay. So like more or less six straight up and down lines crossed by three. It's a big, weird, curvy tic-tac-toe. And at one point it it was on... Dr. Henschelwood presumes a larger piece of silkrete, so the design was bigger. Maybe there Mm -hmm. were more lines, more oblique lines. Who knows? But a flake was knocked off, and the flake is what remains and has these 
grooves on it. Awesome. Okay. This has shifted our thinking about when human ancestors started drawing. What was the earliest known drawing before this? The earliest known engraving, a zigzag pattern incised on a freshwater shell from Trinil, Java, was found in layers dated to 540,000 years ago. In terms of drawings, a recent article proposed that painted representations in three caves of the Iberian Peninsula were 64,000 years old. This would mean that they were produced by Neanderthals. I think that is La Pasiega Cave in Spain, which is a really interesting site. And the, the dating of those drawings is people are debating that but so the drawing on the blombo silkrete flake is the oldest drawing by homo sapiens ever found you describe it as a drawing how can you be sure it wasn't just a random series of scratches i don't like your tone <laughs> the presence of similar cross-hatched patterns engraved on ochre fragments found in the same archaeological level and older levels suggest the pattern in question was reproduced with different techniques on different media so it was a motif <laughs> this is what we would expect to find in a society with a symbolic system embedded in different categories of artifacts it's also worth noting that patterns drawn on a stone are less durable than those engraved on an ochre fragment and may not survive transport. This may indicate that comparable signs were produced in different contexts, possibly for different purposes. And seen. Let me return to myself for a minute. Just for a minute. This interview, where is the line between abstract incisions and drawing? Right? Because... The fact that the lines are in more or less what we would call a pattern, right? It's lines crossed by other lines, and it seems to have been done deliberately. Can we assume it meant something? Do we assume, you know, in the in the interview, Henschelwood says it may indicate that comparable signs were produced in different contexts, so it may appear again and again. But we lack the framework, the the social kind of hive mind of understanding that would have hive minds the wrong word, but there's the <laughs> the framework of understanding that lets me send you an emoji and you to understand what that emoji means, right? The idea that we all share some kind of symbolic baseline and we understand when using those symbols that they mean something. So can we assume that that framework existed for these people? Was the maker just bored? Like carving scratches on a piece yeah, of rock. Like what like people do that in like notebooks, like in meetings or something where you just sort of like yeah, draw constantly. lines and you aren't really doing, you aren't drawing anything and it doesn't mean anything. You're just, you're just moving your hands yeah. because you're, yeah. And so is that what was going on? Probably not. I mean, only because it's pretty hard to scratch things into rock and have them yeah. stay. But well, I mean, the, the, the takeaway is that we just don't know. It's really fun to think about. And with that, we'll wrap up this episode. Thank you so much to everyone who joined us for the live show. We hope you had a great time and we hope you'll come to future shows like this one when they happen. Um, and so thank hmm. you also to everyone who's listening to this episode on the main feed. So if you yeah. missed the show, um, we hope we can do this again soon so you can come hang. And we're going to make the video available to um, everybody on Patreon. Mm -hmm. um, we'll be back in your ears, but not in your eyes next week with more content, which you can listen to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you like to listen. Yeah. And you can, like so many people have, find us on social media. Uh, over on Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. Uh, and on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. 
and all that plus merch and the sponsor and episode link and show notes for every episode are over at our website, thedirtpod.com. Thank you for listening, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.